This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi everyone, this is Felicity and this is Candace. Before we start this episode, just want to jump in and let you know that this content is sponsored by Fidelity. Enjoy. Talk money to me. Hello and welcome to Talk Money to Me, your financial podcast where we explore the markets, investable ideas and chat to industry experts to help you navigate your money in the markets. I'm Felicity Thomas. And I'm Candice Burke. Thanks so much for tuning in. Now today we have another special guest joining us on Talk Money to Me. There's been a lot of news surrounding China, their slowing GDP figures and the overall Asian economy and how that's playing out in the markets. So today we wanted to get the latest scoop into the Asian economies and this asset class with Gary Monaghan from Fidelity, who is the investment director of Fidelity's Asian equities range. We are so excited to hear from Gary because Fidelity's Asia Fund has actually won the award for Global Emerging Markets Equity Fund at the Money Management Funds Manager of the Year Award in June this year in Sydney. So for more than 50 years, Fidelity has been active and on the ground in Asia. Over this time, Fidelity has become the fund of choice given their understanding and knowledge of the region and solid track record of providing their investors with excellent returns. They're actually in fact ranked in number three in Asia in terms of their equity AUM. That is so impressive and hence why we really wanted to speak to Gary about the Asian economy. So Gary runs a concentrated high conviction portfolio that typically invests anywhere from 20 to 35 different stocks arranging across developed and emerging Asia, ex-Japan. And he draws on all of Fidelity's research capabilities and using their analysts and expertise. As Felicity said, they are really on the ground in Asia to find the best companies to invest into. Now, they're doing a great job at doing this because their performance, which date backs to 2005, has been really impressive at 10%, 10.08, in fact, per annum since inception, which is now for about 3% over the benchmark. And if you look at a shorter time horizon, the one-year track record has been 11.72%, again, generating alpha for the investors in this fund of 1.74% over the benchmark. Yeah, and you'll want to learn more about Fidelity's Asian fund after this conversation, So head to their website, fidelity.com.au. Now, before you jump on Google and do that, stay where you are, because we are going to be bringing the conversation with Gary right after this disclaimer. So as always, guys, as a reminder, our chat today is not considered personal advice. 
Even though we are registered financial advisors at Shoren Partners, please note that this podcast and the content discussed does not constitute as financial advice, nor is it a financial product. Everything that we're chatting today with Gary is known at the facts of time of recording, which is the 28th of August, 2023. So with that now done and dusted out of the way, let's bring our conversation with Gary. Welcome, Gary, to Talk Money to Me. We are super excited to be sitting down with you today to talk about Asian equities. Thank you. And thanks for your time today. And I look forward to the questions. So I guess to kick off the conversation with you, because you're obviously an expert in the Asian markets, and that's your wheelhouse at Fidelity, can you paint us a picture on what's going on right now in the Asian markets? You know, looking both at, if you can touch on, be great to hear about the developing and developing economies. Quite simply, there's a lot going on. One thing that often comes up when we're speaking to clients and such, you know, the, the question is, what's going on in Asia? And, and the reality is, everything's going on because it's such a diverse region. Um, you know, you're going from the the tech savvy um, sort of you know high GDP per capita economies like like Korea, you know, down to Indonesia where the GDP per capita is nowhere near. What you get in Korea, it's very labor intensive and commodities intensive. Um, and you've got the domestic driven economy like uh, like like China, you know, and, and, and the tourist driven economy like like Thailand. You know, it's very, very diverse. And so there's so much stuff that's going on. Um, the, the thing that we find, though, from a market perspective is that despite it being very, very diverse, mainstream China news flow is what drives everybody's views. And so sometimes that can be distorted because you may get some negative mainstream news that comes through on China and everyone thinks China equals Asia and it doesn't necessarily mean that. Um, and, and then you get indiscriminate selling and you can find investment opportunities, but but you can also find those opportunities within China as well. Um, but we'll get into the markets a bit later because as you said, that's our wheelhouse and that's actually where you make money. Yeah. Um, we, we don't sweat too much on, on the macro. The macro obviously has a, an impact and it, and it certainly impacts sentiment, but um, the macro numbers, whether your GDP is 1.5 or 1.7, we, we don't sweat too much on that. Um, but, but what's clear at the moment from a very, very high level picture is that the developed economies, you know, your Korea in Hong Kong, for example, you know, they're coming in with you know, kind of unexciting GDP numbers. I think Korea's latest one was something like 0.8%, Hong Kong in the second quarter was one5 um, but then you've got the markets like India, Indonesia, and even China, by the way, coming in with GDP numbers above five percent. Now that masks the underlying, you know, the the underlying information. Um, but to go to my first point, it's very diverse, um, and people tend to focus on the negatives, um, which is understandable. But there are again very good investment opportunities for us. Yeah, very much so. And as you said. Look, the macro is important, but it is often short shockwaves and, you know, it's instant into the market. So really topical that we're excited to have you on the show because just out is the China, quote unquote, you know, slowdown in in growth and GDP and I guess a disappointment there. So just quick numbers for our listeners. We heard recently that GDP growth is going to be slower than expected, about 6.3% in the quarter compared to, you know, that's a bit weaker given the fact that China was in lockdown mode for most of the last, let's call it two, three years. Youth unemployment is climbing high. That's another kind of area of concern. And they did, I guess, hint to the market that, like you said, 5% will be the overall growth number. That is not normal for the aggressive pace that China grows at. So could you just, Gary, for our listeners, give us context on 
why that, I guess, was seen as a bit of a shock in the news? Yeah, I think partly because, you know, like the rest of the world, China was coming out of, of, of COVID restrictions, right? And the, the slowdown that that came. So there was a, maybe expectations that you're going to see a huge bounce from you know, China reopening and everyone's going out and you know spending, basically, and, and that hasn't materialised. There's a few reasons for that in our minds. I think one, quite simply, is that after you know two two and a half years of, of you know, pretty severe pain from a, from the lockdown, people just because the you know the doors are open again and you can you can go out and live your life again, people are still a little bit wary about going out and, and spending money because times have been tough. Um, you know the the economy had has been going through a rough patch and. That that doesn't go away overnight because suddenly you can you can get on a train and go to the next town. So, so there's an element of of that. So therefore, consumption hasn't come bouncing back there. You, obviously, you get things that like people are going to you know, the, the quick service restaurants and they're going to cinema. You know that that is obviously happening, but you know, people aren't going out buying cars and and you know going on massive long haul holidays because they're saving they're holding that money back because they've had a lot of rainy days. The other one, though, and I think it's very important, is that the property sector in China um, is, is is very important to that whole macro picture. You know, it's a big sector from an overall GDP perspective, so the health of that is important. But there's also this wealth impact as well. Similar to most other countries, most people's wealth is largely tied up in, in property. And if the property market is going through a bit of a rough patch, um, people don't necessarily feel wealthy enough to go out and you know, buy that new car or, or that second property, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Australia is very tied to property, so we completely get that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is it. And and so China's no different from that. But what I think is, is from a market perspective and where people are, are hoping or well, have been hoping um, is that the government comes in with some sort of big stimulus package and just gets the ball rolling again, which is, isn't actually the case. And... We think there's a couple of reasons. One is, you know, that that just means taking on more debt, and and China doesn't necessarily want to take on more debt to essentially potentially kick the can down the road, um, and and you know resolve some of the debt issues that that sector has already faced. We can go into some of the background of this in a moment if you want. But but also, um, the, you know, the the Chinese mantra, in particularly once President Xi was reappointed, was that the property is for living, not for speculation, and you know for quite a while. The property market was essentially dominated by private enterprises coming in, building those you know those those nice properties and selling them expensive, and and then you're getting this speculation coming through and and some bubbles emerging, and the common man was struggling to to, to afford property. And what the the government has done with its policies you know, is come through and essentially put in some what they call the three red lines. So some some policies which are linked to leverage rates and, and, and you know, capital provisions and such um, that cut the funding actually of these private enterprises so they couldn't actually get money from the banks to, to, to develop future properties and finished properties. And, and that's created this whole amount of turmoil in the background. And as I said, we don't think that they're going to be reversing these policies and to, for the benefit of the private enterprises. So it's going to be a bit of a, a, a sort of a slow grind back um, and that again is keeping 
the, 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 the economy sort of dampened um, overall. So obviously for Australians, we know that Australia has been a big long-term winner from China's extraordinary growth you know, over the past decades, mainly because of its lucrative resource exports. But I guess what we're wanting to know, is China running out of puff or is it just kind of a hiccup in the road of their growth? What do you think, Gary? I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the multi-billion dollar question, not, not even the million <laughs> dollar question. China is big. So there's always a bit of puff there, um, if, if, to use to use your term. Um, so there's always, there's always a bit there to to, to get things going. Um, but you, you also do have to be realistic in that the Chinese demographics that we're seeing are worsening, right? So you know the expectations are that the essentially you know in the next sort of year two years, China's uh, population will reach its peak, and then from then you're going to start to see the population slow and 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 decline you know the aging demographic you know comes with concerns around productivity and and, and so on and so forth and so that's going to be a, a headwind that needs to be addressed and, and of course we're hearing lots of talk at the moment and around you know supporting innovative companies automation robotics and all these such areas interestingly enough they're these are areas that the u.s sanctions have been targeting over the last few years so um, so you know you can you can potentially draw your own comparisons, but when so that that is a bit of a, a headwind. Um, but at the same time, China is still massive, and people are still wealthy enough in in parts of the economy uh, to get things going. But do we really think that we're going to get back to the days of seven, eight, nine percent year on year growth? No, I mean the economy is massive, right? And to to think that you can grow that much consistently. You know, from now for the next 20 years is, is, is so unrealistic. And so this is a big sort of reset of expectations. And, and the expectation of 5% growth this year is part of that, that, that resetting of expectations. And maybe we should start thinking about 4%, 4.5% growth and not 8 or 9%. Absolutely. And I mean, they're still really good numbers. So essentially, billion dollar question has been asked here on Talk Money to Me. It is just potentially a hiccup. So they're not running out of puff anytime soon. So can you run us through your investment process and what you look out for with your fund? Yes. Yeah, so we, we split it broadly into you know, fundamental sentiment valuation, right? So obviously, when we're looking at companies, you're understanding what the business is, what they're doing, how the business you know, structure is changing, how the industry structure is changing as well. And you know, does the company have cash in the balance sheet or not? You know, what, what's its cost base and so on and so forth. You know, that that's our day-to-day. And an important part of the process is, is sentiment. That can take many forms, right? But quite simply, if we're sat here today and suddenly you get the market down 10% or, or an industry down 10%, you know, I'm being a bit extreme here, but... You, you go right. Okay, this is interesting. Something's happened um, that spooked the market. You know, not all the time, but quite often, it is driven by a, you know a single company or a couple of companies, or maybe there's some regulatory news in the background. Everyone's got scared. Their initial reaction is right, sell, right, just sell, and we'll worry about it another day. That for us creates interesting opportunities because you could end up finding you know throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, you can get some good companies that are just indiscriminately sold off amongst this sort of headline, usually top-down news. Um, and, and sentiment creates volatility, which people don't really like. But actually, we think volatility can be your friend because it, it actually, you know, when people get scared across the market, that's when you can try and be brave and, and step in. And that's what we try to do. 
Um, and then you've got to value it as well. And sometimes uh, you get negative sentiment that comes through in the market. You think fundamentally the company's quite good, but actually it's not been derated enough. And so it, y- your risk reward doesn't make sense. But other times as well, you can see the stock is on its knees in terms of valuation. And you can take a simple view that people have got inertia with the stock. They've kind of had enough. Um, that to us is quite interesting because even if the negative, you know, things don't quite work out, hopefully you've got some margin of safety there to protect you on the downside. Um, but if things get slightly better, you could get some strong re-rating in the market. So it's looking at fundamental sentiment valuation. And, and one final point very quickly that we do spend a lot of time on is around industry structure. And you know, particularly in emerging markets where you get maybe a lot of regulatory changes that come through, um, you know, there's lots of lots of things happen on the ground. You can get news flow that comes through that people get spooked about because it's just changing the industry structure. But we spend a lot of time trying to understand what does that news flow mean? So maybe there's regulation. Does that mean that the industry structure is changing for the better, um, i.e. the weak the weak are going to exit the market because they can't survive? Or, or is it going to change the industry structure for the worse, i.e. is it going to make it much more fragmented and harder for companies to make profit? And really understand that. And it's not just regulation. It's things like U.S. sanctions right, on, on Chinese companies. We sit here thinking, well, from the optics, it's like, right, US government is targeting the Chinese tech sector from a sanction perspective. Is that bad? You know, well, it's, it's not helpful for sure. Um, but if you're a non-Chinese technology company, so you're in Korea or Taiwan, what it's actually done in time is actually improved your competitive environment because it's taken out some of your Chinese competition. So that creates actually a more competitive, uh, much better um, uh, landscape for, for non-Chinese tech companies to grow revenues and grow margins as they look ahead. So it's understanding industry structure as well, how the business fits within that fundamental sentiment and valuation. Yeah, that's really interesting. And we definitely understand that the market's being very volatile. You know, I think like you said earlier, it's actually not surprising to have 10% swings now um, over the last like three to four years. It's really, really been like that. One more follow-up question here. Is your underweight the Chinese darling Tencent and Alibaba? So we'd love to know what your reasoning is for that. Yes, yeah, so if I start with the last question, Ali and Tencent in particular were, were you know, monopolies in their respective field. So Ali in e-commerce, um, Tencent in mobile gaming and, and sort of social platforms, right? very broadly. If you recall, it was back in November 2020, right, the, the, the government came in and started to regulate the, the internet sector. And it came into sort of, you know, broad sort of forms of regulation. It was around data security, how data was used. Um, you know what what companies were doing with with data, um, but also targeting some of the way that the companies were operating. So if, if I use Alibaba as, as an example, they had a lot of exclusivity deals in in place. So they had the biggest online e-commerce platform, and if you had a product to sell, you know Ali would say, "Yeah, well, you can do it, but only with us." And so that you know it just created this you know more of a monopolistic sort of situation. And, and regulation has come in and has blown a lot of that apart. So now, from a competitive viewpoint, there, there is more companies that can attack the market share of, of the big guys at Ali, for example, because essentially they can't have a, a monopoly on selling products and have these exclusivity deals in place. Also, you know, with regards to things like data security and such and, and the way data is used, that makes it less useful for advertisers. Don't get me wrong, advertisers can still use you know, the data within, within, the, within the framework, 
But if you're doing online advertising, the, the, the more you can manipulate the data, essentially, the, the, the better it is and the more attractive advertisers find that. that. That's less attractive than it has been. The other thing as well is that the, the sort of M&A activity within the internet space um, it will, will be dampened as well. So what used to happen if there was someone, you know, a new kid on the block that was showing signs of either doing something good or could tap into the market share of the big guys, the big guys would use their strength and just buy the company up. Um, you know, it, it's not quite as simple to do that anymore. So, so what that ultimately means is a competitive landscape has been blown apart and it's, much, it's a much more competitive uh, industry backdrop across the internet sector. When it, mean, when it means more competitive, it means that you have to spend more to acquire a new user. It means you have to spend more to keep your users on your platform. And also, it becomes more difficult for advertisers to know necessarily who to go for because they're not quite sure where all the eyeballs are going to be going. So within all of that, we just think that the industry structure has been changed that much to the detriment of margin growth of the individual companies, and we're staying away. Fair enough. Plus to add on the fact of, you know, the consumer is slowing like we heard. So, but just rewinding it, we would love to hear more about, you know, potential red flags in your investment process, because we're going to hear your bull case and a couple of really exciting stock ideas. But what do we need to avoid, Gary, when we look at the Asian markets? Not necessarily just the Asian markets, but any markets is when people get very hyped up and excited. FOMO stocks? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's great to ride the wave, but be careful because, you know, it can come back and, and, and bite you on the backside if you if you hold on for too long. So know when to get out is important and <laughs> to take a profit. It, it really is. And so sentiment, you know, going back to my point on sentiment, sentiment can be your friend because when things are really negative, but when things are all really, you know, hyped up and excited, that's that's a red flag. I mean, if, if I give you one example, POSCO in Korea, steel company, they sort of relabeled themselves uh, a couple of months ago as a an EV materials business, right? And and the stock was up over 100%. That to us is a bit of a red flag. And it's like, well, okay, um, you haven't done anything different. You've, you've just sort of labeled yourselves a bit different. And the market's caught on to that, that hype and that theme and, and it's bid the stock up. You know, things like that are, are a red flag. And overall, the biggest red flag is valuation because you can have the best company in the world if it is the single most expensive company in the world, you've probably got more opportunity for downside because it can disappoint. You know, nothing can go on an upward trajectory like a big hockey stick um, sort of trajectory forever. And you've got to be really, really wary of, 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 of valuations um, overall. So that's the, probably the, the biggest red flag. Well, that's fantastic to hear and we completely agree. So I guess to just reiterate your investment process, you look at bottoms up strategy first, you look at the company level, then you're looking at you know overlaying you know the macro environment, regulations, risks, re-rating and valuation. So that's a really fantastic, I guess, summary and approach that you guys have been doing really well at Fidelity. So with that in mind, what is screaming as a buy to you right now? In terms of uh, some of our, our, our highest conviction positions, um, I mean, one to flag would be someone like Focus Media. Focus Media... They, they essentially do sort of, um, I think broadly called indoor advertising, but it's like screen advertising, billboards. Um, so if you go into an elevator or an escalator and you've got the screen there, there's an 80% chance that in China it will be a focused media screen. So an incredibly strong market position. Um, and, and that is you know, one thing that's certainly very attractive about them. So a comp on the Australian market would be OO Media, right? If you know of that business. 
Yes, essentially sort of billboard and, and, and screen advertising. Now, what's interesting about this is obviously, you know, it's linked to advertising revenues and what people are advertising is stuff for people con- to consume, right? And and that's gone through a rough patch as we've talked about, and it hasn't recovered in the same way. But at the same time, during COVID, people weren't spending that much. And now we're hearing from consumer companies that they want to get their brand awareness up. So now I think people can get out and about and they can spend, you know, so how do we get our how do we get our brand out there? And you could go down the route of, you know, internet companies and using the internet companies to, to advertise your product. As we talked about just now, the, the, the market structure a little bit has changed there. But, but also what you tend to find with internet um, advertising is that if you're searching for a pair of glasses, you're going to get adverts for pairs of, pairs of glasses. And what consumer companies want is a very big, broad kind of brand awareness campaign that touches every demographic possible. Maybe if we were talking you know, many years back, that was the, the realm of, of TV advertising. But of course, people stream, right? So you don't get necessarily the ad breaks that you get. So how do you get a captive audience, 30 seconds to maybe a minute and a half? Well, an elevator is a great one. And there's a lot of high rises in, in China and no one wants to look at the back of someone's head. So they look up and look at the screen. And and so the utilization rate of these screens is, is, is pretty strong. And, you know, we, we're seeing sort of good numbers coming through. And, and according to the company very recently, back to about 80 to 90 percent of, of the revenues from 2021. So they're not back to sort of pre-COVID levels um, at, at all yet. Um, but they've had a much better cost control. So actually their margins are already higher than 2021. So as we get increasing utilization rate and, and more and more advertisers coming through, we should be seeing some margin growth coming through. And, and as I said, the consumer companies are telling us that they want to start building out their brand advertising because consumer consumption will bounce back. You know, it hasn't bounced back as strongly as people hope, but it's trickling back and it will come back. We're seeing things like, for example, in July, they, they raised their average selling price or screen time. And we anticipate as well a further 10% hike of in, in the average selling price in January next year as well. So all of these things combined look great. Net cash on the balance sheet. Um, and it's been a stock that we've, we've held in the portfolio for, you know, for about oh, probably about a year and a half plus. And a nice cheeky dividend yield of like almost 6%. Is that right? Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, look, the dividend yield is, is obviously it's an outcome of stock price and things. It's a nice to have for us. We're not hunting for yields specifically. But it, it also, however, points to capital allocation policies and, and, and that sort of governance around that, which is also sort of a positive tick in the box from a fundamental perspective. But yeah, overall, we think that we're, well, we are seeing and we will continue to see some, some growth in this area. You know, that's really interesting and interesting as to why it's been added to your portfolio. And I suppose relatively new as it's only been, you know, just over a year that you've had it. Really thought provoking. So on Talk Money to Me, we love investable ideas. So we're going to ask you, do you have a second pick and why? At the very highest level, the some of the semiconductor stocks, although broadly come into the semiconductor industry across the Asia region, are attractive. And two that stand out currently are are Samsung Electronics and NSK Hynix. Samsung, as you know, is a, is a bit more of a technology conglomerate, but you know, big mover for their share price is memory, and particularly DRAM memory. Um, and, and SK Hynix is a pure player in the memory space. On top of that, Samsung have got uh, sort of a developing microchip foundry business. I think currently it's around six, seven percent of their total revenues, but but that should grow over time as well. Now, now, why do we like? these two companies. First and foremost, if you take the short term and the long term, long term, we all know the opportunity set in in 
sort of the semiconductor space. Development of AI, high-powered computing, electrification of vehicles, all of these things are essentially silicon-based or semiconductor-heavy, right? And so the long-term opportunity is really strong. Going back to my point earlier on, on US sanctions and how that's changed the, you know, the market landscape, by, by targeting Chinese companies, the US has actually, whether it's intentional or not, but you could say even unintentionally, has, has taken away some of the competition from SK Hynix and Samsung because one of the threats was that you were going to get some Chinese companies moving into this space and, and challenge the market share globally. Well, that that is more and more unlikely with the US sanctions. And so their, com- their competitive landscape is much more attractive. Shorter term, and, and the reason that we've been buying into these names, um, we've owned SK Hynix for a while, but we purchased Samsung for the first time ever in January this year, is that there's been a bit of a slowdown in demand for for technology uh, sort of semiconductor components in 2022. So there was a buildup of inventory. This wasn't necessarily hi- highly unexpected because if you think, during COVID, individuals and companies brought forward a lot of their purchasing decisions. So you're buying your new laptop, you're buying your new smartphone, you maybe corporates are buying new servers because people are working from home. And so in 2022, people weren't going to suddenly buy a new laptop because they'd already bought one a year before. So this build-up of inventory sort of was an overhang and it created a bit of a derating in that whole sector. What we're seeing is that that inventory is being digested. Um, some recent numbers we got from SK Hynix was at the beginning of the year, they were sitting on 12 weeks of inventory. Now they're sitting on eight weeks, roughly. You know, that's being digested. We're seeing the cycle improving uh, in, in time, hopefully back end of this year. As the cycle improves, so you get better supply-demand dynamics. You get more pricing power coming through. They can hike up their average selling price. Lo and behold, that, gr- that grows revenues and margins. And so for us, this is an opportunity using that short-term negative sentiment at the back end of last year, early this year, to buy into companies with great long-term opportunities with a view that these short-term dynamics were improving. So really we're bullish on traditional advertising and semiconductors is what we're hearing on those two stock picks. So thank you for that. We do love investable ideas, especially when, guys, I give you some numbers here to put some real gravity behind uh, Fidelity and their performance to date. So the Asian Fidelity Fund has returned 10.08% since inception, beating benchmark by 3%. So that's an alpha of 3% there. It's fantastic to see that when you look at you know active fund managers. It's really no wonder the Fidelity Asia Fund won the award for the Global Emerging Markets Equity Fund, which was recently held at the conference in June of this year at the Money Market Management Fund Awards in Sydney. So congratulations, Gary, to you and the whole team at Fidelity. That's a fantastic achievement. So now we're really impressed. You guys are great stock pickers in this space and niche market of the Asia market, ex-Japan. We'd love to hear your top kind of investment themes as we look beyond, you know, the next maybe five to seven years because what Felicity and I always say is as investors in equities, you've got to be in for the long haul, right? Everything you've said, we've agreed. The, the short-term noise is all vol, but what are the trends that you're excited about in the next five to 10 years to come? Yeah, I think one of the things that the last five years has taught us is that actually anyone's predictive skills for the next five years is tough, right? So I have to caveat the the answer with that. It depends on how you, how you look at this. So obviously the tech sector in general is going to play a much bigger role as we look ahead because we're just much more tech hungry generally, whether you're a corporate or, or an individual. So the, the stocks in that space 
um, and, and the companies that can emerge as leaders or, or maintain their market positions with the likes of TSMC in microchip foundry business, Samsung and SK Hynix in memory can actually stand out as long-term winners. The but here is that you, you've got to think about valuation and that's really, really important. You can have the best company in the world, but if it's the most expensive company in the world, you might not make much money. So don't get too sort of uh, wedded to the theme because you've got to marry that that theme with with valuation and, and and a casing point here actually is is india right so india is from a pure macro top-down perspective is a bit of a market darling fantastic opportunities the demographics are really attractive i think the median average age in india is like 26 or 27 years old it's like 1.4 billion people gdp per capita is around two and a half thousand us dollars so the scope for economic development is absolutely fantastic you know you could sit here and go well over the next five years seven years isn't isn't that great but actually if you're taking price to earnings ratio now pe is not necessarily the be all and end all it's not you've got to use other multiples as well but india is trading at double the pe of china so do you sit here and go well actually in a five-year perspective taking the macro in india is much better than china it seems if we if we take it at face value today do you want to pay double for that and can you make more money in China, actually. And so, so for us, looking at themes and looking at the long-term direction, you understand it, you tap into that from a long-term perspective on your stocks, but you've got to be mindful of valuation because otherwise you, know, you, you, you can end up falling foul of falling in love with the macro and, and the top-down story, but missing the, missing the detail um, and wonder why you didn't make as much money as you thought you should. But tech is certainly one. India, look, is there's going to be opportunities that merge as India develops as well. But don't ever rule out China and particularly the A-share market, which has got loads of good companies. But you've just got to do due diligence and really understand the underlying business. Now, don't go anywhere as we've only just begun to really unpack Fidelity's top investment themes and their Asian equity outlook, which I'm finding very fascinating and topical. We'll be back shortly. 
probably most negative in the China property sector um, overall. And you know, there's a concern, I think, from the market that the you know, property sector is not going to get back up and running anytime soon. That to us is is, is interesting because again, you know, you get indiscriminate selling and everything linked to property gets sold off. Now, if we take just a slight step back, what we've seen with China's sort of three red lines policies is essentially, you know, without going through all the detail, what we've seen is the state-owned enterprises have, have come in and sort of dominated and they've taken over market share from the private enterprises. What's also happened um, un- underneath that, and so when you cut down a layer, is that with all the turmoil at the developer level, and, and you know concerns around finishing of properties and all these sorts of things that the building materials companies have, have taken a bit of a whack um, you know they've seen accounts receivables go up i.e you know there's a lot of unpaid invoices payments um, haven't been received they've been hoping for um, and so understandably they've been they've been hit quite badly and, and faced a lot of derating but why why do we find the building materials in sector to be quite interesting well what as account receivables have gone up what that's actually meant is that a lot of companies in those sectors, in the building materials sector, have, have gone under, basically. And so any company that's been able to essentially just stand still while everyone else around them is, is you know, while everything else around them is, is sort of going through a really rough patch, they've been able to gain market share. And, you know, if I give you one example, so Beijing Oriental Yuhong, right, they do, they do waterproofing. And the secondary business is insulation. If I was talking to you roughly two, three years ago, they had roughly around 10% market share in, in waterproofing. Today, they're close to 20. And they've essentially doubled their market share, not because they've necessarily done anything, but they've been able to stand still while, whilst you know the, the industry overall is going through a rough patch. And and it's a similar story but, um, for someone like SK Shoe Paint, um, who you know, they do paint obviously and again gain market share um but but also on top of that they're a paint business and so they benefit from renovations and maintenance and so they've got this recurring revenue stream coming through but they sell to property developers as well and so they've been they got hit with the same stick and not not quite necessarily to the same extent so so those areas i think are really interesting for us one other area that's quite interesting to us is broadly linked to sort of shipping, um, but but you could link it to energy as well. We we all know the long term sort of change in in energy mix going forward, right? So over a multi decade viewpoint, as we you know, if we're sat here looking to twenty fifty and beyond, you you can definitely foresee that we're going to be looking at alternative sources of energy, whether it's you know, wind or solar or, or something else we haven't even thought about. That's going to happen, and so therefore you should expect a bit of a drop-off in demand for traditional energy sources, whether it's a coal or oil and such. Now, if we look at the shipping industry, and particularly the crude carriers, right? if, if you're going to put down $100 million for a crude carrier today, it's going to take you 20 years or so to, you know, to, to earn your money back on that. So it's a long-term sort of return on investment for, for that. Now, if you don't know where the oil market, how it's going to be looking in 20 years' time, because it's hard to judge, companies are quite worried about putting down that money for a crude carrier. And so what we've seen in, in sort of most recent numbers is around 1.5% of the global crude carrier fleet globally is being replaced on an annualized basis. I mean, that's nothing. And, and you, get, you, know, you can imagine how many ships every year are scrapped and so on and so forth. And at the same time, you know, although the demand in the long term will probably change for oil 
it's not going anywhere in the next two or three years, right? And it's not an overnight thing. And so what you've got here from a crude carrier perspective is is you're getting a lot of scrappage. You're not getting that, that much replacement. And so the global fleet um, is, is reducing. And yet demand for the underlying product that they're shipping, i.e. oil, isn't really changing very much at any time in the near future. And so simple supply and demand. You get less supply of ships. Even if you said the same demand for oil, probably get higher demand for oil if emerging markets grow. Um, you end up with you know potential outcome for higher freight rates, which is beneficial to stocks like China Merchants Energy Shipping. Um, so you know, there's for us looking at the the long term trend, but marrying that again to to what's going on in the nearer term. Yeah, that's an excellent way to view it. And I guess coming back to, I just I can't ignore very topical again is AI, right? So what I, which is just getting so much press in every market you look at in every corner of the earth, because the fund is, as you've gone through, it's it's pretty well positioned and heavily weighted to tech, you know, running around 33% at the moment. And you've mentioned some really interesting tech names, particularly in the semi-space for the Asia markets. When we think tech and semis and AI, you know, normally you straight away think of the US and you think NVIDIA it just came out with a cracker report, but Weirdly, the stock price didn't do much, you know, as a reaction. So I'd love to get your comments about that. But more broadly, from your perspective, what you're seeing and, and talking to with Asian companies in the AI space and tech, you know, more broadly, are we just touching the surface here or is it a bit of a hype, you know, FOMO, like you were saying earlier? What's your thoughts on that? AI, development of AI is, is, is not going away, right? So it's here to stay. Um, you know, what form that takes, well, time will tell, um, essentially. And then you've got to think about other things like how eventually would it get would it get regulated and, you know, all these different things. But I mean, that's a bit further down the track as, we, as we're sat here now. Just using NVIDIA, as you said, you know, crack, cracking numbers. Stock didn't do that much necessarily, but that's maybe telling you that the things are really hyped up and valuations are expensive. Going back to my point, you might be considered the best company in the world, if you're super expensive, you probably won't make too much money on it as an investor. Um, and maybe that could be you know, an example, if you like. But, but for us, if you're looking at someone like an NVIDIA, which are, as it stands today, a company that's deeply important to the whole sort of development of, of, of AI, they, they, they don't just you know, make everything from themselves, right? And, and if you think about who they get their microchips from, well, they get them from TSMC. For example, so you know they need TSMC to be to be working in order for Nvidia to be powered, uh, and so for for us there are ways to play into that AI theme um, through Asian companies and someone like TSMC, who supplies to Nvidia, you know is is a very good example. Um, but and this is really important for us, we think of TSMC as like providing the picks and shovels. They don't develop AI; they provide the you want to call it the chip, the power, um, or, or the brain to, to AI developers. But essentially, they don't care if, if it's NVIDIA or someone else that you've never heard of. They're going to sell to whoever is going to be winning out. And they don't just sell to you know the AI companies. They'll sell to electric vehicle companies. They'll sell to smartphone companies as well. So they've got a very broad business. But very importantly for us, yes, they're tapped into certain themes right now like AI, but they don't necessarily... You know, rely on they're not a single sort of customer um, product you know they, they've, they're across the board and they essentially hopefully will be selling to you know the, the the new new winners as well so for us a really interesting long-term opportunity to play into tech theme as, as a whole and and it's a relatively similar story for the SK Hynix of this world and Samsung where 
because they've dominated the market space in, in memory. Data centers need more memory for further development. Then they'll turn to these two companies. Um, and again, Samsung and SK Hynix don't necessarily care which company it is. They're selling across the board and selling the picks and shovels uh, of memory to to you know data centers and other such uh, co- uh, companies. That's interesting. So essentially, I mean, the semiconductor companies really can just date around um, and they're not tied into a particular theme or I guess that whole FOMO or hype uh, that AI has had. They really can um, spread themselves across multiple sectors and industries. They can. And, and it's not all, by the way. I mean, I mean there's been some I think if you go into like the mid, small and mid cap space in in like Korea and Taiwan, that are much more linked, if you like, to you know AI as a single theme. Um, you know they've been bid up quite handsomely. We're, we're happy to sort of stay out of those because the hype is hype at the minute. Um, and yes, okay, we can, you can understand the long term demand, but it hasn't actually been seen yet. We 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 haven't necessarily seen. You know, revenues go through the roof and such. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's growth. But ultimately, look for companies that have got a dominant market position. That's no, no, one, no, one's, no one's bulletproof, um, but really, you know, as bulletproof as possible. And these ones are really diversified, which I think is really interesting. And it makes sense why it's in your portfolio. All right. So we've talked a lot about some really exciting stocks and themes in your portfolio. However, from a risk return aspect, defensive assets like fixed bonds or even term deposits are looking really attractive right now. So my question here is, you know, we know that a lot of Australian investors are probably really underweight Asian equities. So why invest into Asian stocks now when you can get a pretty good return from defensive assets with minimal risk? Yeah, I mean, look, that's, it's, it's, a, it, it's a big question at the moment, right? So why, why take on equity risk when you can get 5 or 6% at the bank? Um, that, that's certainly for sure. Um, depending on where you are in the world, um, if, if your inflation rate is very high, um, that 5 or 6% isn't a real return. Um, and so equity markets, hopefully, if you get inflation coming through, can actually drive earnings growth um, because inflation feeds through to the bottom line of businesses. Um, and so you could get inflation plus returns in equities generally, right? Now, it's not necessarily an Asia, an Asia market case. Um, for us in Asia, there are some areas that are tough to make money in, we think. But going back to some of the stocks we've talked about, in the semiconductor space, um, you, you're talking about someone like a Focus Media. These are companies that we think, as we look ahead, have very strong prospects to grow revenues, to grow margins. They're not trading at super expensive valuations at all. Um, and so therefore, there are opportunities to to make money above that, hopefully, 5% um, sort of fixed term deposit rate that you, that you mentioned. Um, that's the right here and the right now. One other thing as well that I would point to i mean i'm t- talking mega long term but very wary i will say this from the cab from the very start very very wary about linking macro and micro too much right because you know d- strong gdp growth and such doesn't necessarily mean you're going to make money because of valuations and all these things but if you look at the oecd data again this is very long term so this is a caveat but they're saying that by 2060, which is a long time away, the four biggest economies of the world will be China, India, US, and then Indonesia. There's three Asian economies will be potentially the biggest economies of the world. Again, assuming that everything you know kind of goes to plan from here. But at the same time, those three economies combined um, account for less than 5% of the all-country world index. I mean, Indonesia is about 0.2% of the global world index. 
And the reason I say this is that if you're 30 years old, you know, I think in Australia, what is it, 67 years old for retirement? Um, if you're 30 years old today, you'll be retiring around 2060, uh, around that time. And so do you want to start putting some money in now? I'm not saying put all your eggs in one basket, but put some money in now that will potentially benefit from that long-term growth trajectory, which, you know, the, the economy as it grows, will obviously bring some corporates along with it. And, you know, is it time to dip your toe into the water if you haven't done that with a very, very long-term view? From a short-term perspective, you know, we talked about earlier, there are some good stock-picking ideas for the next one or two years. Yeah, exactly. And look, we like long-term. It just means a cushier retirement uh, if this does play out. And who doesn't love that, right? So that's really interesting because we commonly will quote to our clients and investors and anyone that will listen to Felicity and I talking about markets and equities. I think Australia at the moment is like less than 2% of the global economy. So really interesting to hear what in terms of your opinion and the data of where Australia is going to be long-term, right? Yeah, I think, look, Australia over longer term, I know there's, there was a recent report out, right, where there's some concerns about the population growth and, and demographics and such, which is a developed market issue, actually. It's not, an, it's not an Australia problem. It's a developed market issue. And everyone relies on immigration, right? Yeah, relying on immigration and, and improving productivity and such. I mean, that is something that Australia is not alone in trying to, going to have to resolve if the pathway for demographics is potentially worsening in time. But Australia, don't forget, has got you know, it's quite rich in resources relatively to a lot of countries in the world. Regardless, you're going to get swings, you know, in terms of demand, but demand will be there. Um, and, you know, you've got a lot of space as well. So you've certainly got room for population growth as well. So, so there's, a few, there's certainly things going for it. The blessed country, as we like to call it. <laughs> well, there we are. And, you, and you've got sunshine as well. So that adds on top. But the yeah, the Australian economy in time, I think, as you say, will probably need to look at immigration growth. Um, and figure out how to improve productivity as well. Well, really loved hearing the long-term, you know, bull call uh, for Australian equities. Mega long-term. Mega long-term. We're on board with that. So if we come back to the fund, it's it's a high conviction fund at the end of the day for someone who wants to invest in the Asian fund, holding around 20 to 35 different stocks in there. So what has to really happen for a stock to come out? No longer a concentration, high conviction thought there. Because I'm going to assume you have like a bit of a target list of who's going to come up into the fund um, and run us through, you know, how that works, the in and out process. Exiting is actually more important than, than entry. And because you can buy anything, right? Someone will always sell you something if you at the right price. So they won't necessarily always buy it off of you. Exit strategy is, is, is critical. That's where valuation really comes in. You have to take a view on valuation and be disciplined and... Valuation doesn't mean target price, by the way. Let's say you've got a stock at 100 and you, and you say, oh, right, the target price is 200 and it gets there. That's great, right? But actually, the reason it got to 200, maybe that it's developed even further, something's happened within the investment thesis and you know, 200 is cheap and maybe it should be three. So, so, so don't dwell just on a target price, but really understand the valuation and what's, what's driving that. And if you get a sense that the valuation has been bid up and so your valuation multiples are going up but the business hasn't actually changed at all or, or very much that's maybe a sort of a, a trigger signal to to start thinking about pressing the exit button because that's when the valuations are out sort of if you like uh, are, are, are getting a bit too expensive and risk reward goes up so valuations is critical then the other thing and, and unfortunately this is learned through you know sort of experience in time is that 
if something changes for the negative, just get out. Obviously, understand what what's changed and why. If if things have changed for the you know for for the worse from a fundamental perspective, you know, it could be regulation, it could be something about you know the business strategy or what have you. Be be prepared to to press the exit button and. That is where liquidity is really crucial as well. So whenever you're buying something, make sure you know what the liquidity profile is of, of that stock and that you're confident that you can get out quick if you need to and, and work with your trading desk um, because that's where you can get caught. So if you've got something that's lo- very small cap, doesn't trade much, there's a change in view or you think, oh gosh, this isn't going to work. If you can't get out of it, you're stuck. And, and that, that is a bad place to be. So, so liquidity is critical as well. That's absolutely gold for our listeners. I think they're really going to enjoy hearing that. Super valuable. So Gary, you've given us some really, really great insights. And obviously, we always really like to ask our guests their bold prediction for the rest of 2023. So... What is your bold prediction about the markets in the coming months as we draw to a close? I can't believe I'm saying that we're drawing to a close already. Do you have any for us market-related and non-market-related? I don't think this is a bold prediction, but it's not going to be a straight line. Um, and and it's, it's going to be really quite volatile. And you've got to continue being in this market environment focused on, on, on stock selection and laser-focused on doing your due diligence because the China sort of issues some of which we've touched upon you know are are, are still going to be sort of there in the background um and they're not going to be resolved overnight um you've got something like a market like india who who as i mentioned from a macro perspective is great but the valuations are quite expensive as well and and you know for, for to justify some of the valuations they need margins to grow and they're already quite high so so you, you you're going to have sort of elements of volatility so not a bold prediction but the prediction is it's not going to be a straight line and it's not going to be sort of a driving miss daisy sort of ride it's it's going to be quite volatile and going back to my point earlier sometimes volatility can be your friend yeah, so hold on to your seats really is what you're saying <laughs> it's be brave don't look at your your statement on a daily basis um i mean that's a that's a general piece of advice for anyone um it's not going to be a straight line and um that's where stock selection comes in and actually creates alpha and and, and makes money for you Great. Do you have any non-market related bold predictions for the end of the year? Um, it's a it's a sporting one. After spending hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, Chelsea, who's my team, might actually start winning again, uh, and that's a very bold prediction because they've been playing terribly. <laughs> um, so, so that's my that's that's not a bold prediction. That's my um, that's my hope. That's your hope. <laughs> But we're going to go with a bold prediction, put it out there into the atmosphere. Well, thank you so much, Gary, for talking with us today on Talk Money to Me. Thanks, Gary. Thank you very much. All right. What a very interesting conversation with Gary. You know, if any of our listeners want to learn more about the Asian Fund or any other investment opportunities that Fidelity offers, you can head to their website, which is fidelity.com.au, which is fidelity.com.au. Love it, love it, love it. Now, before we sign off, please remember, although Felicity and I are financial advisors at Shore and Partners, as always, you guys know this very well. Our chat today does not constitute as personal financial advice nor is it a financial product. As always, if you have sparked interest out of this conversation, go out and seek your own professional advice before you make your investment and financial decisions. And of course, it's all based on the facts note at the time of recording, which is the 28th of August, 2023. That's it. And follow us at Podcast for daily market updates. Until next time, see you then. 
Money to Me is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Talk Money to Me are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Mates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find the ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Talk Money to Me acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.